Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is composer and arranger Dennis Dreeth. But first of all, composers have been having a problem for a while with the money and the budgets going down and basically not making what they used to. One of the reasons why budgets have been going down is because most studios and networks feel that the composer really doesn't need an orchestra anymore or can fake it using samples and using their digital audio workstation. So we find there's less and less money available, and even though there may be more work there in terms of what the composer is doing, they're making less. But now we've gotten to the point where film studios and networks are demanding kickbacks from composers. What that means is they're looking for a percentage of the downstream royalties. Now the way it works is usually a composer will make some money up front, for their work and then they get paid for the number of times it gets played on television now with the film for instance you don't get paid for the number of times it plays in a theater but when it does go to television then you get paid for that well now what's happening is the networks and the film studios are beginning to ask composers for a percentage of that money that comes in later on Essentially, what they're asking for is to share writing credit. On the writing credits, it would be the composer's name as well as the studio or the network's name. Now, there's nothing illegal about this, although there seems that there should be. But essentially, what the networks are doing is they're saying, if you want to work for us ever again, then you have to do this. So they're becoming a big business bully in effect. This is even happening for production music, in other words, library music, where the network is going to the composer and saying, gee, we'd love to use your music, but you have to cut us in on the downstream royalties. So this makes being a composer even less lucrative and even more cutthroat than it did before. So just imagine if you're a composer and you work really hard to get into a position where finally you're getting big league work, all of a sudden they're coming to you and saying, well, you know what, we're not going to pay you for what you did, and then go to a younger composer who will probably work for that, which sets a precedent, which kind of hurts everybody down the line. So obviously this isn't something that's going to work in favor of the composer. It's not something that we want to see, but it's becoming a fact of modern compositional life. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. The second edition of my social media promotion for musicians book is now available on Amazon, iBooks, Ingram, and a bookstore near you. It's the manual for marketing yourself, your band, and your music online, and covers how to use virtually every important online platform for promotion. Also, check out my courses at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Now, going to the audio side for a bit, we all love 500 series racks and modules. They're an easy and inexpensive way to get a big sound for not that much money. That being said, one of the downsides is the fact that they're analog. So they have the problem of having to recall them manually. Take a picture with your phone, then recall from there. Well, that may change pretty soon because now there's a trend towards complete control of the 500 series modules via software. And this includes automation, which would be a wonderful thing. There's a number of companies that are actually doing this now. The one in the forefront is called Wes Audio. 
And they've actually put something forth called the NG500 Rack Initiative. They're using the same 500 series connector on the modules, but it has some additional pins for connectivity. And basically the connectivity is going to be via USB or internet. And this is going to allow the ability to control modules via software. Now you could download this particular software, put it in your digital audio workstation, connect it via whatever that workstation is and control the modules from within the workstation. It sounds pretty ideal. The problem is, of course, it doesn't work on modules that haven't been fitted with this extra connector. So this is for a new generation of modules and racks coming up. Now we're starting to see this happening more and more with newer manufacturers that are getting into this. There's a company called BetterMaker that has memory and recall on their racks and modules. They've had this for quite a while. There's another company called Fredenstein, and they have two different racks, the Bento 10D and 60. And once again, they allow for recall via USB. And of course, SSL actually has their X-Rack, which allows you to recall via their total recall, but there's no real-time control. It should be interesting to see what happens with Wes Audio and the NG500 Rack Initiative, because I think this is an idea whose time has come and it's something that everybody would like because one of the things that especially for home studios is to have a few 500 modules around and if you can control them from your workstation it would be just ideal it'd be something that everybody would want so look for this to become more prominent in the future 500 series software control my guest today is composer arranger dennis treath who started in the business playing sax with the beach boys but soon turned to composing and orchestrating for commercials television, and motion pictures. Along the way, Dennis wrote the scores for cartoons for Hanna-Barbera, movies of the week like Columbo, and motion pictures like A League of Their Own. He also became the go-to orchestrator for the biggest composers in the business, such as John Williams, Hans Zimmer, Jerry Goldsmith, and many more. Dennis actually served as the international president of the Recording Musicians Association for 15 years and served as a consultant and member of the American Federation of Musicians Negotiating Committee. I spoke with him via Skype from a studio in Southern California. Tell me about how you get into this business. Boy, um, you know, it's funny. That's a question that everybody asks me. Uh, my daughter, who's a drummer, and, and uh, her friends uh, ask me the same thing. And, you know, I, it's, it's the... Uh, I think what happens is uh, you make friends at an early age and, you know, you, you play with those people. You form band with them, you form friendships, and those relationships are the ones that you forge um, forever. I had um, a number of my film students always ask me, how do you break into the movie business? And I'd always tell them that they've got great music and they think Steven Spielberg would love them. And I say, no, I'm sure he was, but Steven Spielberg always has already has John Williams. And so... What I tell them is you need to find um, the people who are going to be the next generation. So if you're a film composer, you need to go to find you need to go out and find the next John Williams. You need to go find uh, I mean not the next John Williams, the next Steven Spielberg. You need to go find each director. If you're really into the into the record business, um, you know it's great if you you know could get to Mike Clink for example, but uh, you need to find the next Mike Clink. You need to find the next person. And what I tell people is uh, is you go out and you do everything you can. You do their demos, you work on stuff, just hone your craft, and you start out like that. And 
uh, and you, you build those relationships. Uh, this whole business to me, it's, it's all about relationships. So it's, it's about the relationships you build when you're 16, 17 years old are the ones that you nurture through your 20s. And by the time in your 30s, you know, everybody sort of arrived and you're making music together in whatever genre. So what happened in your case? Well, I, I think that was kind of it. I, I had a lot of uh, friends. Uh, in my case, it was interesting. I, I was sort of... Uh, envious i i started playing uh music a little bit later i didn't really start music until i was in my junior high school era and by the time i got to high school i started playing in different bands and uh and i had a lot of friends who was interesting whose whose parents were uh, were studio musicians mm. and so i became friends with them so it was in in many cases some of their parents were the ones who helped me with my first connections the people who actually uh, it, it was interesting because i didn't come from a family of musicians and I sort of envied all those guys and gals who did. Uh, so, but somehow forging those relationships with those players when I was in my teens and having the advice of their parents really helped set me on a path. I mean, I didn't really know um, what kind of careers that were available in music. When I started playing music, I just loved to play music. <clears throat> I didn't know what a studio musician was. I didn't, uh, all I knew is I wanted to play music. And, uh, and I got uh, kind of, you know, pushed in the right directions early on. Um, and then some of the people recommended me for jobs. I remember some of the first things were playing jobs, um, you know, going out and doing bus and truck uh, musical, playing woodwinds on them. And uh, I did that. Uh, I played uh, saxophone with uh, Paul Revere the Raiders and the Beach Boys and <clears throat> just some stuff like that. I worked for one with the Osmond Brothers. Uh, all those things that I did, like on the road, gave me a chance to make a living. Uh, and then it was through other friends that I found other opportunities. When I got back off the road, I'd been writing a lot of arrangements for different bands and stuff like that. And a friend of mine was writing for Hanna Barbera, one of the ghost writers over there, and recommended me for a job. The funny thing was, um, uh, they were looking for somebody who could uh, do a country, whole kind of bluegrass score. And of course, I had uh, my whole experience had been R and B and jazz. So when they called me and said. Uh, um, so uh, Richard tells me that you're uh, an expert in bluegrass, <laughs> and I went absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and not knowing uh, the first things about it, and uh, uh, the first call I made was to uh, a really good friend of mine, a piano player named John Hobbs, who was who I knew was uh, uh, was the uh, maven of country music uh, here in Los Angeles. And um, so I ran over to John's house really quick and said, uh, "Quick, uh, teach me some things." Uh, you know, some chord progressions and a few licks that'll get me through. And uh, John did that. And he had me a, a stack of records, said, here, listen to these guys, check out these chord progressions. Listen, you know, here's a couple of hot licks you can uh, incorporate. And, and I um, wrote the first show based on uh, on those things and um, became uh, became the expert uh, for Hanna-Barbera for a while. And they're, they're, I became the bluegrass and uh, country specialist. Tommy Tedesco tells a similar story where they asked him to play flamenco guitar. He knew nothing, but he learned one lick, and all of a sudden he was the expert and would keep, keep on playing that lick over and over no matter where he was asked. <laughs> I, I'm positive I was on some dates with Tommy when he did exactly that. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't matter. He'd have one lick that fit, and then uh, he could. He was, he was such a convincing boy. He was such a great musician, and he was just so convincing in that. And it is funny how that happens. I... Uh, um, in a similar situation years later, I was uh, working uh, for Universal, writing music for a lot of their sort of utility programs, and I was sort of the backup guy when, when they when a score got thrown out and needed something to fill in in a hurry. 
And uh, at one point, uh, uh, they needed some 1920s, real roaring 20s music. Um, once again, my jazz uh, sort of education started quite a bit after that. And uh, I did a couple of arrangements in that style. Uh, once again, I was having a friend. I called up uh, Spud Murphy, the famous uh, arranger who had done all kinds of uh, arranging for uh, for Duke Ellington and orchestrated for Billy Stray, Strayhorn and uh, had uh, orchestrated and arranged for Ella Fitzgerald, all kinds of people. And uh, was a great guy. Benny, Benny Goodman's arranger for years. And I called up Spud and uh, got some advice and made it through my first couple of arrangements and became the, uh, the hot jazz arranger at Universal for a couple of years. Well, so it's, I know, and once again, it's, it's friendship and relationships, and I think that's how you, you know, and I, my advice to people is you, you don't want to take an opportunity or take a chance of something you're going to fail at, but uh, you don't want to turn anything down either, and you need, you need to develop uh, some kind of a little bit of a bravery to attack new things, but you also need a safety net. you got to find some people who can help you through. Did you have any formal training in arranging or in orchestrating or was it just on the advice of others no i actually i um when i was in college uh, i was a music major at cal state la and i uh had been a composition major there and i did study uh formally uh arranging and orchestration um and uh of course my college days were somewhat uh odd because i had uh, i'd moved uh out of home, my, my dad and I had sort of a dispute over my choice of careers. And so I left home, uh, basically, uh, to make it on my own. And uh, so while I was in college, I, I really uh, had to also suddenly make a living. So I was going on the road a lot, and I wasn't showing up for classes. And I had some great instructors who um, allowed me to, uh, uh, for example, the orchestration class and basic, uh, basic music theory, I became the instructor's grader so I could take papers on the road. I would grade their papers and not show up to class. And I, I did that. But I also say that where I really got my formal education was um, in two ways. Like one is I, um, when I graduated college, I still felt like that I was sort of lacking. I didn't, there's a lot of things I didn't know. And there was a great orchestration teacher in Los Angeles named Albert Harris. And uh, he was sort of the orchestration teacher for all kinds of guys doing films and television. And I went to Al Harris for a couple of years and studied with him. And that's uh, where I really, I thought, honed my, my craft. And then I, I was a ghostwriter at Hanna-Barbera for about four seasons. And I think I got to put a lot of that stuff in, into, in, into practice. So, um, so that was how I did it with my education. Well, you were an orchestrator for a lot of great composers. Did that come after you had some success, or is this right in that period? It was more or less, I guess, after I had a little bit of success. I, I'd been you know doing a lot of TV movies and some some other television work. I hadn't had a lot of feature film experience. So it was sort of when I sort of, I guess, kind of gotten sort of semi experience and, and at least accomplished that I actually had a couple of great opportunities. And yeah, I really had an opportunity to work with uh, some of my idols, you know, in terms of some of the great composers I've had a chance to work with. And, and I learned something from every one of them. I, I That's where I, boy, went to school. I, you can't help if you're, if you're sitting there orchestrating something for John Williams, you know, and you're looking at that, and you know, a master like that, Lalo Schifrin, and Jerry Goldsmith, those guys are—they're these absolute, you know, gods of of, uh, of the business, as far as I'm concerned. And you look at that, and, and these are incredibly gifted and incredibly schooled composers. And you you look at that, and there's the lesson you can learn from just taking apart their sketches and then recreating those and orchestrating it for them. Uh, our lessons are incredible. There's, uh, 
I, I owe a great debt of gratitude uh, to all the people who sort of, uh, you know, put up with me through those uh, early stages of that kind of stuff. How long would it take to do an orchestration? Well, it's funny. I was having that same discussion with somebody today. And, uh, you know, some of them would just almost write themselves, uh, especially when you're writing for John Williams, it was pretty easy to, everything's so well spelled out. Um, and then it's just, it's hard for me to say some things are just like anything else. You look at a piece of music and you can do an orchestration or an arrangement and they're just in a heartbeat, you know, and, uh, and other days you might just struggle for four bars. Um, uh, I'm on a project right now. There's a jazz singer in town named uh, Kathy Siegel Garcia, who has, you know, a couple of records out and plays around. It's really wonderful. And we're doing, um, an album in a couple of weeks. And I'm uh, working on a couple of the arrangements. Uh, Bevan Manson is the producer, and I'm uh, taking over on, on a couple of the arrangements. Here's a great Vince Mendoza song uh, called "Ambivalence" that she's written some lyrics to. And you know, Vince Mendoza is his, the original recording was with the uh, London Philharmonic. This is a beautifully rich, gorgeous ballad, and it seems like I've looked at this thing, and the music is so wonderful, but it's also quite complex, in that uh, you know there might be a place for just a Something on a lead sheet might say an E chord, but what's implied is like, you know, raised 11s and flat 13s and all kinds of stuff that's not really there, but you can't really just have a cluster chord. You have to work out these lines. And uh, I spent, uh, yesterday I spent all day on four bars, literally. Wow. And then I went back today and fixed it up a little bit more. <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, and then today I sat down and whipped through, a, you know, several pages of the same arrangement. Um and another section. So it's, it's really hard to say. I, I think it's one of those kind of things where it just seems to take as long as it takes. And of course, uh, deadlines are uh, great enforcers of, uh, of, of a schedule. Is that, you know, you can work for uh, four days on an arrangement, an orchestration, and then uh, uh, a day before a session, you can get three orchestrations that have to be done and you power through those and you somehow manage to do that. So um, I just always seem to manage to... Uh, you know, whatever time is there for it, I, I, I use. So I, it's hard for me to, uh, you know, a lot of guys can tell you exactly how, um, you know, how many, you know, pages and how many minutes they can write, orchestrate in a day. And I've always been able to get uh, whatever done that I had to get done. But uh, I tend to really go over things and agonize, ruminate on them quite a bit. You know, not that I would put myself anywhere in this category. There's a great story about a meeting of um, Igor Stravinsky and Max Steiner. And Max Steiner was uh, reputed to be like an incredibly fast uh, film composer and, you know, a wonderful composer and wrote great volumes. And they were sort of this cocktail party. And, uh, you know, Steiner was bragging about the volumes of music he'd written uh, the day before. You know, like, you know went through 20, 30 pages of this, uh, you know, you know, orchestration. And Stravinsky said, huh, really? Um, thought a minute. He goes, uh, I wrote one bar yesterday. <laughs> and uh, Steiner kind of laughs. And then Stravinsky goes, but it was a good bar. <laughs> <laughs> when you get a sketch in, does it tell you how dense the orchestration should be in different parts of the arrangement? And the reason why I ask is because Obviously, it has to work with film. Are you orchestrating to picture? Most of the time, yeah, we are because we're we want to make sure that the orchestration, you know, that we don't step on dialogue. Even though the composer has done his job by trying to write things around it, you know, we certainly don't want to 
create a you know a really thick orchestration that's going to have a lot of frequencies that might have like you know um, for example we're not going to put like a you know a nice lush flute solo right at the same time a female is given a dialogue right they're right in the same register so we yeah. might put a lower string pad or, you know try to surround those things and it's different with every composer <clears throat> some composers they're different on each cue i've had situations with uh, lalo schifrin where i've had a very complete like eight line sketch where it was almost you know just all i do is copy something and i've had other times where lalo's given me uh, a lead sheet and a melody and said here you know what to do with this huh. Uh, so, and in those cases, you look at it, you know, he, he wrote such a beautiful melody and, and it works so well that, in fact, I didn't know exactly what to do with it, you know, knowing knowing him. So it varies from time to time. And um, and especially now we get a lot of uh, MIDI mock-ups as well. So what happens is you get a, a model where the composer has sent you, you know, his, you know, a, a synthesizer realization of what the score should sound like. And our job is then to flesh that out and make a, you know, lusher and, you know, breathe some real life into it, add some dimension to it. And uh, so there's a little bit of a, you know, a fine, in that case, it's a really fine tuning, but we have a pretty good idea of what the composer wants, you know, how, how dense the music is and, and all of those things. You've composed for film and television and jingles. Which one would you like better? Which one is, is the most demanding? Well, that's a, a tough question because they all have their, their challenges. Uh, when you're writing for jingles, usually you have to crank out stuff pretty quick. You got a really short burst, you know. And then television um, is such a tight schedule, you know. We're under, under really tight deadlines. And then film is like the scope, you know. And and, uh, and of course, there we have compressed schedules. So, you know, I've had easy television shows and really hard shows. I've had easy motion pictures and hard motion pictures. And it's hard to really say that one is more challenging. Or what is more rewarding? I, mean, I actually have found that some of the you know lower budget television projects I've done, I've had the most fun and they've been the most rewarding in some ways. And then in other ways is you know there's nothing quite like a big budget motion picture with a 110 piece orchestra at your disposal. And uh, in those cases, you just have this incredible palette to choose from. And there's I don't want to say there's not any challenges, but you have so many choices available. Where sometimes a project that has a very small ensemble and a very tight budget, you know, produces a, a different set of challenges. So they're, they're all different challenges to me. When you say you have fun doing something, what constitutes fun? Boy, I, well, I thought you might say, how, how is this fun? You know, you've got this pressure, you have to write something for a hundred piece orchestra and there's a session, you know, two days from now, how was that fun? And maybe the, the sweating part over the, over it, uh, but then, you know, the eyes, you're sitting there and you're writing something, you know, that maybe you're going to write a part that, that a musician is going to sit there. And one, I have to say, and especially in Los Angeles, you know, in New York, you know, other places too, Paris, London, but especially here in Los Angeles, <coughs> we have a collection of the world's greatest musicians. So as I'm sitting home and I'm writing a line here and I'm thinking that I'm going to have, you know, arguably one of the best French horn players in the world play this solo. And, uh, you know, you know that they're going to breathe some real life into this part. And that if you can know as you're doing that, that they're actually not going to not only do that, they're going to make it glorious. They actually might like playing that part. They want to write something. And when you deliver that and you can hear that on the stage, hear that music come to life. Uh, there's, you know, very few feelings uh, to me in life that are as exciting and satisfying as that. Um, you know, uh, when I was doing cartoon shows, 
working for Hanna Barbera, uh, the goal was if I could uh, if I could crack up the band and make them ruin a take by uh, by laughing through a take, uh, then I had succeeded, you know. And uh, so, you know, different challenges, but that was fun. I mean, it was uh, it was hard work, it was grueling work. We had incredible schedules, but uh, but the sessions were like hysterical, you know. And you had these fabulous musicians who were just making things as funny as they could, all that kind of stuff. So, what would crack them up, just uh, as an example? inside musical jokes or you know you could just turn something you know if you're something that's like that's 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 funny you know that the unexpected um it's like any joke you know is it's all about timing so if you're gonna you can have somebody there where the music takes an unexpected turn uh in a, in a completely upside down way it would, it would be humorous you know and yeah. there's also humor you know you can have funny funny music funny sounding music but uh to me it was best as if uh, if they didn't see it coming you know they're playing playing through this chart, and it's it's funny and humorous, and it goes like completely left someplace that they hadn't expected. You know that's the kind of stuff, like anything, and that's the that's the challenge to do those things. I saw that you were a consultant for Barbara Streisand for a concert in um, Las Vegas. So, yeah. what does that mean exactly? You were a consultant on the project. Uh, that was uh, I had a, a bunch of different jobs on that. Some of it was I, I orchestrated some of the uh, the the, uh, the pieces that we were working on. Um, I had been um, by that point president of the Recording Musicians Association. It was a very complicated contract, so I was there to help them put together the whole deal. There was musicians where we were making um, uh, a live recording, we were videotaping, we were doing a live concert. Uh, so my job was to help uh, coordinate all the different business aspects of that. And I was hired to, as one of the orchestrators on top of all that. So I, I was a, I, I wore a lot of different hats in that. Um, and that was a fun project. The band was absolutely fabulous. It was uh, going to be Barbara's uh, big farewell concert. Of course, it turned out to be one of many farewell concerts. But um, and I'd heard so many stories, um, you know, about how um, challenging it is to work for her, you yeah. know, and how demanding she is. <clears throat> and all those things are true. <laughs> But I will say that, uh, and I, I like to tell this this one story. So I, you know, and she, you know, had had a way of, of beating up the arrangers. And, and Marvin Hamlish was the music director on it, and uh, it was my first experience working with Marvin, and, uh, which was I. So there's very excellent musicians. The, the musicianship was fabulous, and uh, so uh, uh, one of my jobs, we did this big medley of Oliver Hips, and I was orchestrating that. And what that meant mostly was taking. You know the great, great Jack Hayes arrangements and all these different arrangements, putting them together in a medley. And I wrote little bridges and stuff to connect them and all that. And I had to write an ending. And uh, one thing, you know, I, Barbara had me write five different endings to people. You know, it was like because uh, she wanted different things, and we had um, and and we had the. It was interesting because we had this one section where I had I had thought I just had this big ending. I figured by the time we get to the big ending, um, that. Uh, uh, it would be like this just huge applause and we'd never hear anything more out then. She loved this one ending that Jack Hayes had written um, for the record. And it has this big ending that comes down to this like little bitty whisper. And uh, I, I made the mistake of saying to Barbara, you know, Barbara, I really think by the time we get to the concert, we're not going to hear that. And, uh, you know, I think we should just end it big, you know, and I just got this look like, you know, <laughs> I'm asking to do this. And I, I understood, okay, just do what we're told. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and I will say, you know, two things about this. Of course, the night of the concert, the audience went crazy. She couldn't hear anything after the big ending, you know. And uh, so things kind of fell apart. And on the soft section, of course, 
was all my fault for uh, <laughs> having been foolish enough to uh, put this soft little thing in there. But uh, the other thing, though, I learned, though, and it was, you know, so it was fun. I, we just kept doing other endings until we made her happy. And and that was my job was to, to try to please her. But uh, so as difficult as she could be, the one thing that I learned, and I kind of always known this, but I really saw it in spades with her, <clears throat> is um, we showed up to the rehearsal. And uh, there's the, you know, the orchestra there. And there's Barbara and her entourage and a few friends, a few Hollywood celebrities and stuff like that. But, you know, pretty, pretty quiet. She shows up wearing, you know, a sweatsuit and, you know, you know, she's kind of like, you know, had, had jogged in or something. And um, so a lot of singers, when you're doing that kind of first run through like that, you know, they sort of mouth through the part, you know, they listen to the arrangement a little bit. They, um, you know, kind of, you know, they kind of coast through it a little bit and hum along and, you know, they kind of feel their way. And they kind of save it all for the performance. And um, I, I, so we pass out the parts and the intro plays. And then the first note, there was this unbelievable performance. There was Barbara Streisand giving 110%, you know, from the very first rehearsal. And it made me realize that this is a woman who, who has only two speeds, fabulous or off. Mm. And every time she opens her mouth to sing it's going to be fabulous. And, uh, you know, it was like a real lesson, you know, to me, it was like, okay, so <clears throat> that's, you know, the mark of somebody who's, you know, who's really successful and, and real star power to me is it, that you really, you know, you give it your all. And it was at that point that I just said, you know, she can ask me for anything because, um, she's given 110%. So the rest of us had to as well. And, and she it was infectious, you know, with the orchestra, with all the orchestrators and everything. And it was just, uh, it was fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a wonderful lesson, you know, on sort of what it takes, you know, to, to make it in this business. You know, it was a sort of a, you know, just a, a metaphor for, I think, what it takes. You mentioned before about helping negotiate those contracts. You were the president of the Recording Musicians Association, for a long time. How did you get into that? Because the business side is definitely different from the creative side and uh, it's two different parts of the brain. So how did you manage that? Well, it is, I'd always been, uh, back in my college days, I had, I had been somewhat of a student activist and uh, politically active. Um, and in the case of how it started with the Recording Musicians Association, like many things, I was I was part of. I was working uh, for a small jingle house, and the uh, president of the union at the time uh, made some sweetheart deals with another company, and it really uh, decimated a big chunk of our business. <clears throat> and so, I was uh, quite angry at the president. It turned out that a lot of other people were angry at the deal, and um, a bunch of musicians just became very active in terms of uh, you know wanting to take care of. Uh, when you make the union more democratic, when they have a bigger say in our contracts. And it had turned out that there'd been a lot of guys before me in the Musicians Guild who had done something just like that in the 50s. And uh, and I actually got to meet a lot of those guys who sort of got you know, sort of politically or unionized, you know, in, in a way that by them. And it just sort of mushroomed into this organization that, uh, that uh, was not growth of that. And we started with, uh, you know, a few guys in Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago, and Nashville, and and that uh, um, 
blossom into an organization of more than a thousand musicians in Los Angeles and similar numbers in the other cities, smaller in Nashville because it's a small community. <clears throat> and um, New York had a very large chapter at one time as well. So uh, it just kind of grew. It just kept growing. And it was really a chance for um, for those who were working in the business to basically have some input into the union. Uh, I can't say it wasn't. Um, uh, at first, our input was not exactly welcomed in the beginning <laughs> yeah. by our union. Um, but we really, you know, forced the hand and uh formed this organization and then banded together with similar organizations of symphony musicians and theater musicians and and I think uh, really transformed the union to a much more democratic operation at that point. Of course that led me um, you know I, I got to meet a lot of people I spent a lot of time in the bargaining table and I, I got to work with some amazing labor lawyers on both sides of the table and learned a great deal about the business side of things and <clears throat> Ultimately, that left, uh, after I think 15, 16 years, um, I left the uh, Recording Musicians Association to take over as head of the Film Musicians Secondary Markets Fund, which is sort of our post-60s royalty funds for musicians working in the uh, in the film industry. And at the same time, uh, I took over this tiny little fund called the AFM and AFTRA Fund before the merger of SAG after it. And uh, that was in uh, 1999. <coughs> we had... Um, I think about $180,000 to make a distribution. And really only there was uh, started with myself and one other person. And uh, we grew that fund into an organization of about 73, 74 employees um, and a hundred million dollar operation. Wow. Uh, 17 years. And it's been all about uh, statutory royalties and copyright issues. And, you know, position I just left, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, I've, I've retired from that. And now I'm, going back to work as a, as a, as an everyday musician. again. I'm sure there's a lot of fun in that and a lot of freedom as well. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, I saw that you addressed Congress on intellectual property. What was that like? Because not many people get that opportunity. Well, it was, you know, it was remarkable. I, you know, I've always been a little bit of a political junkie. And like I said, I've been active in student politics in my college days. <clears throat> and uh, to really be able to see, kind of democracy at work. And I will say that was at a time, you know, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but that was a time when when we had, you know, liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans and people actually could work together. And um, uh, there were some incredible people on both sides. Uh, uh, I spent a, a bunch of time during that that time working with a congressman from here, Howard Berman, yeah. who was, uh, was a long-term uh House representatives a member here. Um, I worked on the, the legislation with Orrin Hatch, uh, kind of an unlikely pair at the time uh, when I first met Orrin Hatch. I had this long ponytail and was obviously, uh, you know, not a Republican and uh, not a Republican from Utah for sure. <laughs> uh, and I found, um, nonetheless, he and I really hit it off, and we worked together on this legislation. I, uh, and so I, you know, the, at the time I, I got to make my statement. To the uh, to a joint policy committee on intellectual property matters, it was uh, daunting, uh, to say the least, because you walk into a, a, a you know a Senate chamber, and uh, there was Ted Kennedy sitting there, and Diane Feinstein, and um, Senator Paul Simon, no relationship to uh, you know yeah. to, to, to the real Paul Simon. But <clears throat> anyway, it was um, a pretty daunting group, and to sit there and have you know 
you know, com- prepared statements, which was the most nerve-wracking part of making my prepared statements. I felt much better when they would ask me questions, and they they did. Once they started asking questions, it was kind of just uh, felt like a, a regular person again. But um, it was a it was a moment, you know, to sit there and and realize that you know this is where people have done these incredibly you know great things. Legislation has come through there, and um, you know, like I, I said at the time when I looked at this, it was you know Democrats and Republicans and people just really wanted to do the right thing. I mean, certainly they each had their own agendas. You know, I mean, I remember uh, Warren Hatch and I having quite a heated debate um, because he was also uh, proposing some legislation that uh, would protect the the flag from any kind of desecration. And uh, while I had always felt that, you know, I felt I was patriotic, I just, I was, I felt that there was, you know, the First Amendment was was more important than uh, than a symbol, and he and I had quite a debate about it. But it was like this really intellectual but passionate debate, and I I really came to like him quite a bit. And and so it was interesting just to be able to do that. And, and I think that uh, unfortunately, I, I think it's a time we don't have any longer. Everything has been so so polarized. There's nothing but partisan politics, and it was really um I had a just a, and a final aside to that. Um, we were having some problems on, on, on the committee getting a, getting you know kind of a real compromise, and I was with Howard Berman, and Howard said, "Come with me," and they were on their way to uh, the chambers for a vote, and uh, pulled me in an elevator with uh, four Republicans, uh. and said to them, "Okay, I want you to listen to him." He said, and "He said, okay, Dennis, you got you got forty five seconds, go." Wow! And we rode the elevator down. I gave my spiel, and. Um, and we, we actually got a couple of people on our side. And it was really because Howard was the most liberal Democrat in Congress at the time, or certainly one of the most liberal, um, was trusted by people who were some of the most conservative. But they, you know, the, he knew and they knew how to find some middle ground. And, uh, you know, it didn't matter that I was, you know, a Democrat and they were Republicans. I was a constituent and they wanted to talk to me. And I just don't see that anymore. Yeah, and it's yeah. a shame. You know, it's funny, I experienced something similar, but on a way, way, way lower level, I used to own a restaurant in Los Feliz, and we had a beer license, but we wanted to get a liquor license, so we applied, and we had to give a presentation in front of the city council. And, of course, we hired a consultant to do that, but I was amazed at how different the language was. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where it's like, wow, you guys are speaking something foreign. I understand it, but I never would have thought to phrase it the way you're doing it. And of course they're doing it in the legalese that everyone is, is used to under those circumstances. But I walked out of there with a new appreciation for anybody that has anything to do with government because they, yeah. again, they're speaking a different language completely than what we're used to. They are, you know, and, and it's, uh, but it's, uh, and that, you know, and I found those kind of things that's to me stimulating. I thought it was fascinating to try to do that and I, i've had some experience with the city council i, I would say that that's every bit as daunting as a uh, as a senate chamber i will tell you that uh, in some way there's, there's a great deal of power and, and and the politics on a local level like that are, are quite fascinating so. yes we uh, <laughs> someday after this we'll talk about that <laughs> <laughs> tell me about your band dennis oh uh, the band so we're uh we have this is um one of my favorite things i'm you know, when I was a young guy in my 20s, we had this band together with a whole bunch of guys who were great players. It's basically, uh, I, I like to say it's not a big band. It's really uh, it, it's really like sort of a, uh, a rock and roll rhythm section with a double horn section. It's eight horns and five rhythm. 
and uh, some of my favorite players uh, in the world are in the band. And um, but at the time in our twenties, we did this, and nobody had. Uh, we were all kind of young guys just going on the road and trying. And I will say that um, many years later, all those guys had had fabulous careers. If you look at some of the, the biggest names and biggest records in the world, these guys have all played on this. And we started playing with the band again. So we've been doing some concerts. We have a concert coming up on November 22nd at uh, Catalina. We just finished a, a CD. And matter of fact, uh, in two weeks, uh, there's a reissue of that uh, CD on vinyl for uh, Everland Records uh, coming out of, out of the Netherlands. And it's just like, what can I tell you? It's got, you know, great musicians. We've been also doing some, uh, added some vocalists to it because it's sort of a you know, it has an R&B flavor, but certainly uh, a lot of improvisation and a lot of blowing. But we just finished uh, doing four songs with Ellis Hall and Tata Vega mm. uh, that I'm really excited about. And um, and so we've had a lot of fun with that. And uh, so hopefully people come out and, and check it out. It's uh, uh, I'd say it's, it's pretty adventuresome. There's a lot of odd meter things, a lot of a lot of room for horn players to, to play and, and uh, some great rhythm section players. Sounds like fun. I have to go check it out. It is. It is a lot of fun. That that is fun. That's talk about the nothing that's uh, and nothing quite like uh, like live music. Having everybody playing live um, in front of an audience uh, after all the years of doing recordings and everything else. To me, that's still one of the biggest kick in the pants you can have. Yeah, it's becoming a dying art, unfortunately. Where there's so much that has to do with studio magic and trickery, where you have a single player playing to whatever the track was previously recorded rather than playing together and it's a real shame that it's happening like that unfortunately it is we had a funny thing we were at uh, at east west we were in uh, in studio three cutting rhythm tracks and there was a, a you know um a pretty well-known hip-hop group you know some urban contemporary guys down the hall in studio two and um and we had the door open for a while and and almost like come out of them, there's a bunch of guys standing around there and one of the guys asked me, like, you know, how we, uh, he hadn't really seen the session, so he, he you know, uh, loved the groove, and he said, how, how, how do you do, how, how do you make those beats? How do you make your beats? And it was like, first, I didn't quite understand, it was like, beats, and he said, yeah, man, it's, it's an awesome groove, you know, how did you do that? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's uh, we had everybody in the room together, and, you know, I said, so we had, like, you know, keyboards, bass, drums, guitar, percussion, all at once. And it was like a novel idea. And it was like, really, you can do that? And it was, yeah, you can do that. And it's like, you know, it was like, that's how you, um, you know, and it was kind of, well, how do you control that? And I said, well, that's, you know, kind of that's the idea. <laughs> you know, it's, there's a little bit of uncontrolled nature you want about that, you know? And, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting. It was just, it was, he just, they, it was like foreign. They, they were, so they, they popped in, they watched the date, and they, they were just completely blown. I said, come on in. That's like no secrets, you know? It's like, this is how we do it, you know? And it was like, uh, well, so hopefully they'll be, uh, you know, maybe they'll think uh, twice about it and decide to try to do some of that. But it was, uh, you know, that's it. to me, that's if you want to make the magic, that's how you do it. Yeah, you know, but that's great because now I bet we'll see some cross-pollinization as a result because they're exposed to something they were never exposed to before. And I'm sure they'll take that back and they'll start to use it and suddenly it'll be something cool again. So, hey, you're at the beginning of it. <laughs> so yeah, it comes full circle, maybe. Who knows? You know? <laughs> Last question, Dennis. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you received from somebody, or maybe you learned along the way? Well, you, I don't want to say you stumped me, but it, it, you know, because it seems like that it's the business advice always, you know, said, you know, I guess that 
we have two extremes, you know, and somebody said to me, you know, you got to balance the best business advice is to balance something. So you don't want to do things for free and be taken advantage of. You don't want to give it away, but you also have to know when it's time to kind of, you know, put it out there. You have to know, you have to know when it, when it's really wise to have a little bit of a lost leader. And uh, the other bit of business advice I say is whatever deal you made is the deal you made. And it doesn't matter. You, you still give 110%. You give 110% if it's the biggest budget project in the world or if it's the tiniest little budget and you feel that you, you know, practically gave it away, um, you still give 110%. So it's that's, I guess, the best business advice is that, that no matter what the project is, um, you treat it like it's the most important project in the world. I just maybe one aside and um, give a little shout out to uh, some of the background singers I work with are the Waters. And I work with Orrin, Maxine, mm-hmm. And uh, and for for ages, and I work with them. And uh, every time they show up for a session, and I know they've done Earth, Wind, and Fire records, and worked with Quincy Jones. They work with the biggest names and the biggest stars, and the biggest producers in the world. And um, they show up. You no, know, they come to my home studio, and we're doing background vocals. And for those couple hours that they're here with me. You know, it doesn't matter that you know that they just came from a date with Quincy Jones the day before. Today they're there with me, and they are giving it all. I mean, and that's the and and what we're doing that day is literally for them is the most important project that they have. And um, so that's the advice I guess to give to everybody is that whatever you're doing, make it the most important project. You never know where that producer is going to wind up. You know, you don't know where, where the record's going to wind up, and and uh, your performance has to always be the best you can make it. So. You know, it's just, I, I always think, you know, you just give it that, that Barbara Streisand 110%. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of both artistic and business advice, I guess. To find out more about Dennis and his band, you can go to his website, which is DennisDreeth.com, D-E-N-N-I-S-D-R-E-I-T-H, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.